When patients receive health care, their medical information is sometimes used for secondary purposes such as medical research. But with that comes privacy risks. De-identifying patient data can help protect patients' privacy, but that's not always perfect either. I'm Marian Kolbasek-McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking to privacy and security attorney Scott Gano of law firm Faruqi, Ireland and Cox, and Dr. Khalid L. Imam, senior scientist at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario Research Institute and director of the Multidisciplinary Electronic Health Information Laboratory. Scott and Khalid will be discussing the privacy benefits and challenges involved with data de-identification. Hi, Scott. Hi, doctor. Hello. Hello, good morning. Now, to start, why is de-identification important to patient privacy? Scott, you can weigh in first. Well, absolutely. Um, Under HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, the uh, what's traditionally called the healthcare privacy law in the United States, there are very clear guidelines with respect to protecting patient privacy and specifically protected health information, which is comprised of 19 data elements that can be used to identify a patient. HIPAA, just for background, it was really much a law as much about privacy and security as it is about encouraging the sharing and use of information. HIPAA gets a lot of attention for its privacy and security components, which are indeed important, but it really is about sharing healthcare information, increasing the efficiency and the speed with which uh, healthcare providers can share information, but as you noted, also enabling secondary benefits of the use of information once it's become digitized, once it's finally left the paper realm and actually become digital information. So it's really much about critical that if you're going to make that move, and the law anticipated this, to using this information uh, in the Internet age, that you have very clear privacy and security requirements in place. And the rule really provides entities one of two ways to do that. One is either strip out all the data, the identifiable elements, the direct and indirect identifiers in a data set to make the data secure, very private, but not with a whole lot of value, or it also provides an opportunity under what's called the expert determination standard for de-identifying a data set where you get to retain a lot of the value of the information that can be very helpful for research and some of the purposes you talked about, at the same time carrying a very low risk of re-identification and maintaining privacy. Going back to the original purpose of the law, you they want the sharing of information. We all benefit from the sharing of information, but we have to find a way to navigate the privacy and security concerns. So de-identification is one method that allows not just healthcare organizations, but lots of businesses and lots of different sectors to capitalize on the real value of that data without compromising privacy. And obviously, all of us are patients. All of us want our information protected. Uh, So if there's going to be confidence in the use of such information, there has to be a very clear standard and method to make sure that those privacy concerns are addressed to ultimately encourage the sharing of that information. Now, Khaled, I know you've done a lot of work in this area. Are all methods of de-identification as good as others in terms of protecting patient privacy, and why, or why not? Not necessarily. There's there's variability in the methods that are used in practice. So uh, you, you can characterize organizations that are doing de-identification on a maturity scale. You have low-maturity practices and high-maturity practices. As Scott mentioned, uh, HIPAA provides two standards, the 18 element standard, which is the safe harbor method, and then you have the expert determination method. We generally recommend the expert determination method because it's a lot more flexible 
and it allows you to calibrate the amount of data identification to the context of the data release. And as a general statement, if you use one of those two standards, then you will be able to release data that is uh, is defensible to some extent. But not everybody uses those two standards. So, so we see organizations that don't use any standards, they make stuff up, or they apply the standards partially but not completely. So in those cases, the data is not going to be protected. And, and the best example of that is pseudonymized data. So that's data where you remove all the names and replace the names with hash values, for example or some other type of pseudonym, and then release that data. So there are a lot of examples of people doing that, and pretty much all the re-identification attacks that are publicly known were done with pseudonymized data. So pseudonymized data is not yet identified. It, it would still be treated, should be still be treated as protected health information or personal identifying information. But if you move away from pseudonymized data and apply some of the more sophisticated techniques under the expert determination method, then you're able to create data sets that are of high quality and that are also defensibly, you can make defensible arguments that the risk of re-identification is very small. And I'm emphasizing the, the word risk here because this is a risk management exercise. And by that, I mean that you make some modifications to the data, but you also put in place other controls to manage the risk. So if I'm sharing it, I'm going to use an example of a researcher. If I'm sharing a data set with a researcher, I can impose controls on that researcher, certain security controls, certain privacy controls, and so I may have a list of, say, 40 controls, and if the researcher implements the 40 controls, I'll modify the data less. If the researcher agrees to only implement 10 of those controls, then I'm going to modify the data more in order to balance the risk, to manage the risk, right? So... You have a, a number of different things, data modification controls that you would impose and put in place, and you may have contracts as well to, to ensure that the researcher is, has, has a contract or a legal agreement with you, and you may have audit scheme in place to ensure that they're complying with these controls, and that's how you would manage the overall risk. For public data where you cannot impose controls because it's a public data set, you cannot require the folks downloading the data off the website, for example, to have certain practices in place, then the only tool you have or the mechanism you have is to modify the data, and that usually results in a lot of modification to the data. So public use files or public data tends to have lower utility than uh, data sets where you are able to impose some of these other controls and have contracts in place to enforce them. So there are good standards that are uh, based on the principles behind uh, the expert determination method. Uh, you also have to remember something else in that We've been identifying data for decades. I mean, the Census Bureau has been releasing data for decades. They've done a lot of work on data identification methods. It's a document called Working Paper 22, which was around, again, multiple decades, most recently updated in 1995, but it existed for a long time before that. That describes the principles of data identification. And other federal departments have been using those techniques to, to identify data and share that data. And there's no evidence that if you apply any of those techniques, any of those standards, that the data can be re-identified. All the re-identification attacks, successful ones, have been done on data sets where no standards were followed or pseudonymous data, as I mentioned before. So there are standards out there. They've been applied and used for many decades under HIPAA. We have a decade of experience with data identification under HIPAA. And again, based on the evidence that's available, if you use some of those standards, the, the success rate from attacking or trying to identify a data set is very small, which is exactly what's expected. So I think they're good standards, but they're not always applied. And I think that's our challenge is, is to transition some of these good standards into practice. We know how to do it. We haven't necessarily transitioned those good practices into the real world yet. If, if I could add a comment, I think that from a legal perspective and from a risk management perspective, that's one of the, the challenges that we see with companies shying away from it. It's just that they don't understand. There's a lot of bad information out there about the standards. Colette talked about in detail, everything that goes into de-identification, this is not something new. This is not something we just cooked up. It's been around for years. The standard's been around for years, and they're very tried and true 
methods to get a data set to be called de-identified, but just agreeing on terminology, getting clients or, or entities to understand what truly is de-identified versus anonymized versus any other thing that you want to say with respect to data is, is half the battle. It's the PR, if you will, for de-identification. So we're talking apples and apples. And a lot of progress, I think, has been stunted with that because people just don't understand it or, uh, as Claude talked about, it's implemented improperly or the wrong name is given to it. And I think it's really held the process back uh, when in truth is, you know, HIPAA has been around forever and, and they've been doing it longer than HIPAA. Uh, the standard's been there for, for quite a while. It's tried, it's true, it's tested. Uh, the, the government's given its blessing under HIPAA. This isn't smoke and mirrors. This is a tried and true method. So, companies considering it should really have some, some level of confidence in that as part of their risk management approach to doing some diligence to make sure they're dealing with the right information before they uh, implement it or turn away from it uh, as considering it to be too risky. There's been ongoing controversy about whether de-identification is enough to protect patient privacy. For instance, there's been some cases where researchers claim that they can identify some individuals using just a few data points like an individual's zip code and if they're sick with an unusual illness and they have any other sort of characteristics that kind of make it easy to pull out who that person is. My question is, as the world is sort of looking at this whole Ebola situation, how difficult would it be to protect the information of someone who came down with this illness in the U.S. or even is tested for it because they've been traveling somewhere in the world where this illness is happening and they have suspicious symptoms. How can this information about an individual be de-identified in a way where if it's later used for research or public health or whatever other reasons that this information needs to be shared, how can you guarantee that someone can't figure out who this person is or those people are? Well, I think there are multiple layers to your question. The first point is around, uh, is the identification enough? So let's look at the evidence here. I mean, let's not express opinions or opinions are a dime a dozen. Let's look at the, let's look at the evidence. So we've done a review of all the evidence on successful re-identification attacks. And it's basically the point I mentioned before is that if you apply based on the evidence, if you apply methods uh, or standards, methods that are based on existing standards, the success rate is very small. If you uh, don't apply any of the uh, standards that exist or methods based on these standards, then the success rate is very high. So a lot of the stories you hear about uh, are uh, on data sets that were not de-identified properly. They were pseudonymized data. So they take out the names, replace it with the pseudonym, and they release the data. And that data is trivial to re-identify. Sometimes the pseudonymization itself is, is, is not done well. And the New York City taxi data example is, is the most recent one. So if you do a lousy job with de-identification, then it's easy for someone to reverse that. But if you do a good, and we know that, that, that's what the evidence says. But if you do a good job, it's really hard to re-identify the data. And there is not a, a known example of a re-identification attack that was done, a successful re-identification attack that was done on a data set that was properly de-identified. So as I mentioned, it's a risk management exercise. You set a threshold of what's acceptable risk. And so in the Ebola example, the context does really matter in the risk assessment. So, so let's look at a number of different scenarios here, so a number of different use cases. You have a, if you're releasing data to a public health professional, the, the laws allow you to share identifiable information for public health purposes anyway. But if, if you're trying to hide the identity of the individual, you have to be cognizant of the fact that this individual, especially if it's in the U.S., has probably been written about in a newspaper already so we know who that person is. The other thing to consider is are you going to learn anything new about the person if the data set basically says 
50-year-old male had Ebola at Emory University Hospital, then and that person is that all that information plus the name existed in a newspaper article, then you may be able to identify the record. You can say, well, record number one belongs to this gentleman, but I'm not going to learn anything new about that person because all the information I have about the person is the data itself. So I'm not going to learn anything new about the person from the data anymore. So. That's an important factor, whether you're going to learn anything new um, or not. But let's say we do want to de-identify this data, then you can start hiding details such as the location of where, where that patient uh, received treatment. So I'm assuming that data set has more than two people in it, let's say there's 100 people. And then you can hide location, you can hide age or provide age range, and depending on other fields exists, exist in the data set, you can do other things to modify the data to protect I guess re-identification. The other thing is you can have a contract with the researchers saying that will not attempt to re-identify the data and put other restrictions on the data, including some pretty tight security and privacy controls in place to manage the overall risk of re-identification. So there are a number of different things that can be done. It's not necessarily the case that you can't share small data sets. Uh, it really depends. There are small data sets that can be shared. It depends on the context of the data release. It depends on whether this is a sample or a population data set. So it's not always the case that small data sets are unshareable or, or data sets with orphan diseases or rare conditions are unshareable. That's just not true. The context matters. In a lot of cases, it's shareable. some cases, it won't be shareable. And in, in those situations, you just have to have a, an agreement that allows you to share personal identifying information. And if I could add to that, I mean, it's something that's very important speaking to talking about facts versus opinions, well, standards versus uh, opinions as well. You know, HIPAA is very clear. You know, we talk about de-identification, but the expert statistician method uh, specifically states that you're using methods to determine a data set has a very small risk of re-identification, very low risk of re-identification, considering all the factors that were there. So even de-identification, and correct me if I'm wrong, that never suggests that it will ever be perfectly de-identified. No one would ever make that representation because there's just too many factors to think about. But applying these methods in accordance with the law, at least with respect to HIPAA, the standard is to have a very, very low de minimis risk of re-identification as opposed to saying something is completely de-identified. And there's lots of ways. The thing that's very, from an implementation perspective, that's very pragmatic about the expert statistician approach versus just stripping all the data sets out, the 18 data elements under safe harbor, is that it can be used as part of a comprehensive existing risk management program. It doesn't happen in a silo. You have to think about who am I giving the data to? What's the purpose? What agreements do I have in place? What security do I have in place? It's not a, a silver bullet that says you, know, you anoint this data de-identified. We're having a very lo low risk of re-identification and you set it out into the wilderness. There's a lot of controls in place. Context, as he said, is very important to consider whether this data set truly has a, a low risk or not. It's not binary. It doesn't happen in a vacuum and it's part of an ongoing assessment with respect to the use of data, which is in line with existing privacy and security practices for any company that's trying to comply with any privacy law as well. So it fits into a, an overall model of risk management to keep risk low in line with the, the appropriate purposes for what you're trying to do with the information. What skill sets are needed by a healthcare organization to do a good job in de-identifying data? What, who, what kinds of experts should they be looking for? Who should they have on their team to make sure that they're doing an effective job in doing this? 
Well, I think the I mean to, to start off with, there is a shortage of of skilled individuals, so that's that's a fact. There's a need to to increase the pool of experts who can do this. So there are two ways that this can be done. One is through training and education programs. And to make this attractive, we need to have recognized certificates or certifications for these individuals, which brings us back to standards and having accepted standards that can serve as the basis for a body of knowledge that can then be used to produce certificates that professional associations can issue to their members. So so that way you can start building a community of experts who can uh, do de-identification. So I think that's really important, right, to increase the level of knowledge in the community on how to do this well so that these, these folks can then work with the healthcare organizations to help them implement proper de-identification, implement responsible data sharing. Uh, the other part is automation because some of the things you need to do, especially in terms of uh, evaluating the risks, computing the risk scores, and then modifying the data itself, transforming the data in order to uh, ensure that the risk is very small, especially when the data sets are large or complex. So, you know, large as in tens or hundreds of millions of records and complex when they have thousands of fields and hundreds of tables. Uh, you really do need automation to, to be able to do this on an ongoing basis. So uh, implementing automation is important uh, as well as the, the, the training and education component. And this is starting. I mean, we have, we have tools. Tools exist in the market today to, to do this. There, there are some uh, training programs and uh, certification programs that are uh, on their way. They're coming. I know a couple of organizations that are writing standards for de-identification, specifically for health data. And some of these, hopefully, will, will be coming out before the end of the year or maybe early next year. Thanks very much, gentlemen. I've been speaking to Scott Gano and Dr. Khaled El-Imam. I'm Marian Kobasak-Begee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.